We are thinking about good news for the wise and foundation. I was reminded of something that happened a couple of years ago in January, I think 2021, the heart of the pandemic. Um, Mohammed bin Salman, which you might not know, Saudi um, Crown Prince, right? He announced that he was going to introduce this, this new thing. And, and they called it the line. And, and the line is impressive, especially in here, right? It is like, I wasn't around and none of us were around for the seven wonders of the world. Like, it will be the eighth wonder of the world, right? If you haven't heard about this, I want to tell you a little bit about it, right? Uh, first of all, it's a linear city, which means that everything's going to be literally in the line, right? Um, it's going to be about 110 miles, and it's going to be a straight line where everything's going to happen. People are going to live there. There's going to be no cars. It's going to be green, and it's like renewable. And so if you're listening to all this, you're like, but they're doing this in the desert. Yes, let's keep going, right? Um, it's also going to be a smart city, which means that, forget your phone, but everything in the city will be controlled by AI, monitored by AI. So some of you that terrifying, but for some people, that's amazing. So it's going to go through it, right? Um, so it's going to be a smart city. Um, they're going to collect the data. It's going to be efficient. Again, it's going to be this green city. In fact, he has promised that it will guarantee about 450,000 jobs to build the city. Um, he's guaranteed that it's going to have $48 billion to his country's GDP, which is a lot of money. Like, I'm still trying to fathom a million. But if you get through some of these numbers, you can get bigger and bigger, right? Um, so it's not only going to have $48 billion to the GDP, but 25% of the entire Saudi Arabian um, population will be able to live in these 110 miles, right? So that is about 9 million people. Um, what's interesting about the 110 miles, though, is that I think right now our most densely populated place in the world is Manila in the Philippines. So when you say 9 million people are in 110 miles, that's actually going to be six times more densely populated than Manila now, right? And, and somehow it's going to be great. Everyone's going to love it. Um, furthermore, each people, uh, I guess each family, they're going to live in what you described as 135 modules. Now, the modules itself are incredibly big, too, which makes sense, right? Um, I think they're going to be about 800 meters in length. Now, I'm an American, so I don't know what that is. I only know meters in Olympics, so you can do the math later. Uh, we didn't get any feet, we gave me meters, right? So 800 meters in length, but 500 meters in height. So to me, that's far, far, right? Um, again, all renewable energy. And here's my favorite part. You're going to have three layers for living, right? The first layer is going to be for the common people, right? Like the pedestrians. You, you walk everywhere. Um, you just get around. Everything you need is supposed to be within, like, probably less than a mile of where you are, right? So it's going to be amazing. But then there's going to be a infrastructure layer, which makes sense. I mean, everything's confined to this area. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on on the ground to make it work, right? But then, which I'm not sure if it's going to be underneath the infrastructure or above the infrastructure, but needless to say, there will be another layer for transport. So how do you get around if no one's allowed to have cars? Same, right? Now, I know for us, it's a little skeptical, because in our country, we don't actually believe in infrastructure, right? Like, some of us, we drive, and we just pray we still have tires by the time we get where we're going. But I want to deep dive my family and my kids and I love to do it. So look at how far the rest of the world. Like, Americans, we love to think we're the best. Until we travel, we're like, wow, our trains are terrible. Like, I've been on, I'm 40 years old. I've been on the same steps of trains for probably at least 40 years. Right? In Southeast Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Like, I've been, we still have trolleys in Philadelphia. Like, that's how much we as Americans value infrastructure. Like, we, like, we have trolleys, okay? So the rest of the world is really ahead of us. So I know as Americans, we have to expect ourselves to realize that there might be something you're not the best at. Right? Like, I know it's crazy to think about, right? But there's going to be things we're not good at. So, like, I know for us, we just want no problems, right? 
But for the rest of the world, they believe in technology and infrastructure. But this even blew my mind, right? But apparently, 9 million people are going to be able to exist and get everywhere they're going on these trains, right? Now, some of you may be, you know, accountants, and some of you may be just thinking about, this sounds like a lot. So I went to do the work for you, and I said, I wonder how much it will cost. And this is where it gets fun. Depending on what source, what article, the Saudi conference himself or someone else, this is the range of cost, right? A hundred billion dollars? Sounds like a lot, right? Because it is. To one trillion. That's the range. Like, I'm like, wow, I, I just did this class. Like, I don't think this class class. You know, but what's your range, sir? A hundred billion to one trillion. Anywhere in there, I don't know, right? But what they're going for, right, is this impressive thing that, that all the world can see. Right? Muhammad bin Salman wants to actually put his name out there, not just as the, the ruler of Saudi Arabia, but literally the leader of the world in how he's going to do technology. In fact, where he's going to house this city is a place called Niyam. If you wonder where Niyam is, you're like, I'm not brushed up my Saudi Arabian geography. It's okay. Niyam was just created. Right? He literally invented it. Right? What makes sense? Because if you're going to build in the desert, you know, like this Ampholanus, there's something called that. So what does Neon stand for? He actually took it from the Greek word Neo, right? Which I know the basics a long time ago, but Neo means new, right? And, and the M for, for Neon is just Muhammad, right? Um, you can do this sometimes, right? Like they, they build cities, they put their name on it. But my family in Liberia, for example, um, were from this town uh, called uh, Bensonville. Right? Like that's where all the Tolbert family, the, the political family family, they were all from Bensonville. Until my mom's uncle became president. Then he was just like, why are we calling it Benson? I don't know who Benson is. We're called this, right? So he literally took out the Benson of like, we're going to keep our eyes to this old person we don't know. We're going to put Paul at the end. So when he became president in 1970, we literally changed the name of the town from Bensonville to Ben Paul. Right? And it, that's what it's called now, right? So leaders do these things. Like, that's what they do. They put their names on stuff. But also interesting is that he said, again, to not make it seem like it's all about him, because it would never be all about him. Uh, he also said that the M doesn't just stand for his name, Muhammad, but it stands for Mustafa, which I don't know what it means, but in Arabic, that means future. Right? So he's taking his people into the future. And this is going to be an eighth wonder. Why am I talking about all this? I'm talking about all this because when we think about the temple in Jerusalem, this is how the people would have seen it. That's something big and large and renewed that gives you hope for the future. In fact, the, the, the temple, the second temple, is the one specifically that happens in the book of Luke that we're going to be talking about that Jesus has in mind, that if we go to our pastor this morning, that the people would all have in mind. In fact, they might have been in the shade of this temple. That would have been their big wonder that they're sitting in. In fact, when they looked at this temple, they were filled with pride, right? And instead of you saying, you know, Yahweh or God is their pride, I would say the temple became their pride. Why? Because, first of all, they replaced Solomon's temple. As amazing as Solomon's temple was in all its glory, and it was good enough archaeological and even historical, and then theological evidence to say that Solomon was at least, if not the richest person in the world at the time, at least one of them, right? Like that's a pretty safe assumption. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian, non Christian, that's a fairly safe assumption. So that temple was great. This was great. That's because what happened is after Israel had split apart, after the, the Syrians and Babylonians came, they destroyed the temple. And the temple had become so crucial to the people's relationship with God, a temple destroyed was a fence destroyed. So now you get a chance to not just replace the temple, but, but renew the temple. 
and John the Baptist and Luke and the emerging people who are going to come out of the Jewish faith of the boring Christianity, but how can we put hope in the temple if it celebrates paradise in our way? How can we put hope in the building and not the people? How can we put hope in something that's designed to make more and more money instead of people I wish those things that you couldn't also be levied on us at the North American church. And so Luke is going to tell you how he feels. One thing I love about studying scripture, studying any kind of literature, right? You can take anyone from Orson Welles to A.W. Tozer if you want. Right? You can take anyone from, from uh, who's the Star Wars guy? Like, who's this? I don't do Star Wars, so I just, I was going to go for it, but I was like, I might as well check myself. Someone's going to check me if I get back. Right? You can be a great storyteller like, like George Lucas or, or Sutan Stevens, right? But in all these storytellers, we give a little bit of ourselves in our story. And so what Luke is going to tell you through the mouth of John the Baptist, through the mouth of Jesus, through the youth of the Old Testament, and how he tells the story of the temple, is that this temple that was very open, great in the eyes of the people, was under God's judgment. Because the rulers hadn't obeyed Jesus. Hadn't obeyed Yahweh. Hadn't surrendered to Jesus. Hadn't surrendered to God. Luke is going to say that this temple that seems grand and vivid, just like we don't trust the foundation of the line that's happening apparently in 2030 now. Luke looks at the temple, and Jesus looks at the temple, and John looks at the temple, and they say, we don't trust that this is going to last because the foundation isn't on God. It's on you. It's on your kingdom. It's on your hopes and dreams for being grandiose and big and large as opposed to actually worshiping and submitting to God. And so when we think about foundation, we think about temple, this is what Jesus is talking about in this passage. In fact, the Sermon on the Plain would have happened certainly in sight of the temple, maybe even in the shadow of the temple. And history tells us that that temple didn't last. That within, you know, a couple of decades later, the Romans will come and destroy that temple. And Judaism, as we know today, was actually born out of the destruction of that temple. Because the people stopped making the focus on the building, and then they went to the law, and then the teachers, the rabbis. And we say rabbinical Judaism, that just means that the rabbis said, this is what it is, and we follow the law. So what is indeed your foundation? That's how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Plain. Who is the foundation of your life? Who is the foundation of everything you hold dear? What are you building? Are you building for the world to see large and big and grandiose? Or are you building with Jesus as your foundation? Not for this world, but the world to come. Go your Bible, turn with me in Luke chapter 6, to be ending the Sermon on the Plain, reading the last four verses, verses 46 to 49. Um, get out your Bibles or you can follow along up front as well. Luke 6, 46, starts like this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. 
You're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not take it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them in the practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Who is our foundation? What are we building on? What are we building for? As we think about salvation this morning, we pray that today may we find you. May we open our hearts and our lives and our minds to let you in. May we chase not after the things of the world or the things that don't last, but truly the things of the kingdom, the things that last forever. May we chase and then surrender by letting you in. May we find you, Holy Spirit, this morning and even in our lives. Father God, we thank you that you have found us. That you not only created us, that you not only spoke us in the world into existence, but you made the pathway back to you possible. You built a bridge for us to walk across. You opened the door so that we can walk in. Lord Jesus Christ, you are indeed that bridge. You are indeed that door. You are indeed the one who makes us right with God. So we thank you. Not only that the, the Spirit may find us, but the Father has found us, but may we be finding you every single day. God, give us eyes to see the world as you see it, to love the world as you love it, and to live to honor God as you live to honor God. We only in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage I call the good news for the wise. Because for Jesus, being wise is about worship. And for Jesus, Lordship is surrender. He starts off the passage essentially telling us, don't call me Lord if you don't obey me. And that's tricky because that's not a word we'd be like to use a lot in our Christianity, right? What does it mean to follow Jesus? How soon before we say obey? We can tell you what it means that, that he's done for me. We can tell you what it means that he loves me and, and everything that Jesus has done. Everything that God has done, everything that God has done, maybe even everything that the community has done. But what have you done in this relationship with Jesus? Because what he means is when he says, you are calling me Lord, if you have to obey. That is the defining characteristic. It's not about what Jesus has done. It's not about what the Spirit has done. not about what the church has done. It's not even about what the Father has done. What have you done? Because according to Jesus, if you do not obey, you do not belong to him. And so, yeah, this entire sermon on the plane, where Jesus is saying, don't call me Lord if you don't obey. Don't call me Lord if you choose to do evil and not good. Because if you're choosing to do evil, you're looking like your father Satan and not like your father God. If you're choosing to do evil, you're not representing me. You're not looking like me. You're not living like me. And you're also putting your world in peril. I have chosen you to do good. And if you're going to surrender to me and obey, you must choose good to look like me. What does it mean to surrender? It means choosing to pray and then to trust God through every single decision. I keep saying someone's going to do this, and I'm, I'm a brother in a Anabaptist, and I can't do them. But I will pass the rejection and bad thoughts about them. And it's okay, Jesus already forgave me. But I think that so many of us who grew up with a Christianity, where we're invited to seek after God's will. 
and seeking God's world becomes this arbitrary thing we can never wrap our arms around, right? It's about seeking and living in God's world. What does it mean? And we get trapped. And part of the reason we get trapped is that while we're seeking after God's will, we still believe we have choices to make. In the sense of whatever choice I make, right, is the most important thing. And that's not true. That's not true. And so we talk some of us this morning, you are not that important. Even in the choices you make, you're not that important. Because if it's all about you and your importance and the choices that you make, then that life is for you. It's not for the kingdom. It's not for your God. It's not for your Jesus. It's not for your sisters and brothers. It's not for anything other than you. If you keep yourself at the center of everything, that makes you a good humanist, but not a good follower of Jesus. Because life is not about what choices you make. It's about whether or not you trust God in every choice. Because here's the beauty of following Jesus. If you fully pray and fully rely on God and fully trust God, and God wants you to go right, you'll go right, and guess what will happen? God will bless you. There's freedom in that. There's also freedom in if you're fully trusting God, praying on God, relying on God, and God wants you to go right and you go left, then we still serve a God who makes the perfect path to you, man. But God is so powerful enough to be like, yo, listen, I wanted you to go this way, not that way. That if you're fully trusting God, God will make it apparent to you what step you aren't supposed to take. My entire life, people are like, what are you supposed to be doing with your life? I was like, man, I messed up like three, four times. But every time, I was just like, you know what? Eventually, God will show me. And that's what happens. We have faith that if we trust God, things will work out. But do we have faith that it's not about the choice we make? That if we make the wrong choice, God will show us. There's freedom in that. You don't have to be trapped by, should I go this way or that way? I don't know what to do. Just go. Just move. Just go in full trust of God. That's what he wants. God doesn't want you to be like, I just got to do the math on this one. Which way should I go? That is being trapped. That is not the freedom that Christ promises. The freedom that Christ promises, trust me, and I'll be with you wherever you go. If you want to go right, and that's why I want you to go, I'll bless you. If you want to go left, and I want you to go right, trust me. I will show you, you've got to go on the right path. And the joy of all of this is that years later, you'll meet someone else in the city. You'll meet someone else in life who's actually at that same point that you were at all those years ago. And you will blink and be like, oh my goodness, I'm the expert on this now. God will get you someone going through that same exact thing. And you'll be able to say what? I just need you to trust God. That's the word. Pray and fully trust God. Again, as we go into the sermon on the plane, he says, I want you to choose community. And here's the thing we forget about community. It's choose diverse community. It's not just choose people who look like me, who think like me, who like me. That's not the community that Jesus invites you into. That's a community of comfort. That's not church. That's the community of pleasure, the community of you, not the kingdom, not the community God calls you to be in. Because what's even at the disciples? What's even at the disciples? You had a zealot who was ready to not to say, oh, the temple's bad, but let's burn the whole thing down. Right? And then you had a tax collector who says, slow down, I gotta feed the kids. And myself too. And they were at the same table. 
every single day. You have someone like Peter, who's kind of like most of us, or maybe just me, who acted before they thought all the time. Then someone like Peter, or Andrew, who all we know about him is that he heard, he believed, he told others, and brought others to Jesus. What a phenomenal testimony. Peter might get all the credit for, for being a rock to build the church house, but Peter wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for Andrew. We all got a part to play. We all got a part to play. So the idea of choosing community is choosing diverse community, intentional community, a community of people who not just disagree with you, but people who can actually grow you. People who not just trust you, but people who can make you a better version of yourself. Choosing that community. Choosing daily, fully reliance on God. Every single day. For most of us, it's every minute. It's every second. It's every breath. We have to choose to follow God. Because here's the thing. You can choose ten days in a row. And that one day you choose to not fully follow God, just take you back 20 days. Amen? Every single day, you have to make the choice to fully rely on God. And that's how you get to the point where you can actually love your enemies. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to obey? It means that you are choosing to love not just those people who love you, but even those who spite you, even those who hate you, even those who, who actively work for your demise. You're choosing to love them, bless them, pray for them. How do we do this? Again, we surrender, we obey, we choose to forgive and not judge, we choose to bless and not condemn. That's what it means to look like Jesus. We choose to bear good fruit. The only way we can bear good fruit is to what? Abide in the vine. There's no fruit, and I love this, because a lot of times people ask me, like, well, I see that like, the people who don't believe in Jesus are doing good things. It's true. Because I still believe God created them. I still believe that you don't have to believe in God for God to work for you. I think we see that in the history of Christian church. I think we see that in the history of the world. I think we see that in Scripture, right? I would even argue you see it in other people's concocted scriptures. That God is so big enough that God works. That God works. And so you get to this point where we can only bear the good truth that God wants us to bear if we're fully abiding in Him. Jesus, if we're fully surrendering our hearts, emptying out the things of the world, emptying out the things that kill, emptying out the things that don't last, and treasuring the things that do last, and treasuring the things of the kingdom, and treasuring the things of God, putting those in our hearts. So the work here is that we ought to choose to follow Jesus fully. And then Jesus, and, and this why you call him Lord Lord, also seems to me to be saying, that calling the name of Jesus is always going to be less than actually listening to Jesus' call. You can call the name of Jesus. You can know the name of Jesus. But if you call Jesus and don't hear his call, you're not following Jesus. If you know the name of Jesus and you don't know Jesus, you're not following his call. Because sisters and brothers, we are all called to be disciples. And I know I've been saying that it's not about formulas, but I came up with a formula. To me, it seems to be that surrender plus obedience equals discipleship. And that's the heart of what Jesus is saying. Disciples obey. Disciples follow. Disciples surrender. And if we want to be disciples of Jesus, it's not about what new program we have. 
It's not about what, what Bible reading of the year that we're going to go through. It's not about what new book is saying. It's not about what Pastor Hank or Pastor Ryan Any of us are saying, right? Surrender and obedience, that's what equals discipleship. If you're not fully surrendered to Jesus, you are not his disciple. And if you're not fully surrendered and living in obedience to Jesus, you're not his disciple. You might love Jesus. You might even be saved. I, I, I don't know who gets into the kingdom, right? But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, and you read the scripture, and you go through the Sermon on the Plain, like you go through the Sermon on the Plain, you'll see that the simple truth is that surrender, full surrender, obedience, full obedience, that's what it means to be a disciple of God. So the question becomes, what does that look like for me? Because following Jesus is surrender. Southgate Foucault was uh, one of the most interesting people I've come across probably within the last year. Uh, he was an orphan at, at, at six years old, I believe, and, and raised by his maternal grandmother, I think. And, and, and at time, he grew up and, and, and then didn't know or have any idea of what he wanted to do in the future, so, so he became a soldier. He joined the, the French army, and, and after he came out of that, that's not really me, I'm just like a young kid, I want to go and have fun. And, and it's funny because it's in fact a lot of fun, and it's about 100, 100 years old. But it's just funny sometimes, it's like, he shows a life of debauchery, right? And, and so for me, I'm just like, what does that look like? Like, what is debauchery in 1858? I don't know, you know? Uh, but that's what he showed for that, that, that period of time. But, but at some point, he became intrigued by, by people in geography. It's a weird thing, right? So then he just wanted to, like, travel the world to study places and to write about it. And, and then he got a little bit of fame out of it. Again, what does fame look like in 1868? I don't know. Right? 1898, ooh, I don't know. But he got enough fame. And, 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 but some of these things that he would do was wild. Like, in fact, he wanted to go to, uh, I what the country was, but he was just like, the best way to get it is to pretend to be a Jew. But he did that's not really how a, a, a white Frenchman becomes a Jew, but he did it, right? So this wasn't a person that, that was like, that you would like write home about in the sense of like, he's a great person until he meets Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, his life changes. He hears that, just like, I don't want to say, Lord, Lord, but when he hears the call of Jesus, he changes his entire life, and he becomes a priest. And not only does he become a priest, but he takes vows of from debauchery to poverty, from excess to charity, from living for himself to living for others. In fact, he even changed his name. Uh, he said, I don't want to be Charles de Foucault, which means basically Charles from the Foucault family. He started calling himself a Charles of Jesus. Now, I'm not that bold enough to be like, I'm home to Jesus, but that's what he did, right? Charles of Jesus also was a really bad church pastor. Like, he was so moved by his call, he's like, God, lady, you know what God's calling us to do? The place is great in the Sahara. That's why, guys, look at everything about the line. You can't figure out where all that is. Look at everything about the line. He's like, we need to put a church in the Sahara. And everyone was just like, well, we thought he was wild before. But, like, isn't that a desert, Charles? He's like, yeah. But there's people there, there's geography there, they're like, oh, there's also God there. We'll see you later. So he goes into the desert by himself. And what's fascinating about Charles de Foucault is that in that desert, he used to talk people, which was this group of Algerian Berbers who are who Muslims. And he realized that I have no community, I have no church, I have nothing around me but these people. How do I tell them about Jesus? I can't tell them to pick up the holy book because they won't touch it. I can't preach sermons to them because who would come to listen to me? 
Instead, I have to what? I have to live the Sermon on the Mount. I have to live the way of Jesus. I have to love them. And that's how I'm going to preach to them. I wish there was more stories like this in 2020. He spent 12 years with that group of people. We're not sure if any of them converted to Jesus. In that 12 years, though, he not only loved them, he learned their language, he learned their customs, he learned their poetry. In fact, he worked on and what became the, the first dictionary of a program into French. Before it was difficult, no one understood their language, and now he made it possible for people after him. And that's what we all ought to be doing, right? He made it possible for people after him to come and continue to work. He lived with them until he was about 15 years old. And then he was assassinated. And what's even wilder about the assassination was that God wasn't there in town. They knew there was this, this wild, mystic French guy who the Muslims loved in the middle of the desert. And they just figured it's easy to find him. Right? You got African Berbers, they're dark skinned. You got Salsa Fuko, and he's white. Easy to find him, right? And their plan was to go and kidnap him and hold him for ransom. Because of the life that Fuko lived, two French soldiers saw this one was happening. They tried to intercede. A 15 year old was one of the kidnappers, and he freaked out and pulled out a gun, right? And the gun goes off, and he actually kills the Fuko on the spot. And they all scramble away, and there's a shootout, and no one knows what happened. And what we do now is that those covering people, those Berber Muslims, those people who lived like Jesus did, it wasn't his family, it wasn't his church, it wasn't his country, it was those people he invested in, who gathered the body, who gave him a funeral, and who told his story to his own people. Surrender looks differently to all of us. But part of our full surrender to God must involve loving others. I love this prayer that we get from Foucault. He says this Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept that only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord. So me to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence, for you are my Father. What I love most about that prayer is that's not the prayer he said when he was killed. That's the prayer he said every single day when he lived. That's the prayer every single day when he lived. God, I want to surrender fully to you. I want to surrender fully to love others. I want to surrender in a way that they can see you when they see you. For all of us, following Jesus is surrender. Following Jesus in this So, what does it mean to be wise? Well, I think for all of us this morning, if we look through this passage, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's probably one of the easiest passages you can go through. But I want you to hold on to these portions, they really spoke to me. And then some of them you've all heard them before. But number one, Christ is the foundation of our faith. 
The scripture used to say that the editor is in the Greek, right? Uh, he's the author and finisher of our faith. Now it's pioneer and professor, and I just confuse him. I like author and finisher. I like that he writes the beginning of the story, he writes the end of the story, I just live in between the story. I love that, that, that Jesus being the foundation of our faith means that he's the solid rock we can build on. But in that instant thinking, he's the cornerstone. And without the cornerstone, you have no building. Without Jesus, we have no faith. Christ must be the foundation of our faith. He's the entry point. He's the bridge. He's the one who brings us to God. We who were enemies are now sons and daughters of the king. We were who were in darkness are now children of light. We who sought the ways of the world can now partner with God to spare our sisters and brothers to do the way of the kingdom. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. I think for most of us, we get that part. But for all of us, the work every single day is to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus the foundation of my life? Because I can call Jesus, but am I listening to Jesus' call? I can know Jesus, but am I actually knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus? I can give my life to Jesus, but am I still giving my life to Jesus? It never stops. It's not a one-time thing. You don't just get to say, I gave my life to Jesus, I'm good now. Even though that's how most of us tend to live. But it's an every single day thing, giving our lives and saying, Jesus, you're the foundation of all we hold dear. You're the foundation of everything. I think what I love about this passage, and I don't know, I didn't hear this enough from growing up in the church. So when the storms come, a lot of us are prepared for the storm. When the storms come, a lot of us say, like, well, where's God in this? Where's God in the storm? I feel all alone. And the hard question is to recognize that I feel all alone because it's not God who's left. It's me who's been walking away. The hard part is realizing that it's not that the storm is so strong, it's that my relationship with God is so weak. And so what does it mean that, that Christ is our rock when the floods come? What does it mean that Christ is be followed even through storms? It means doing the work before the storm comes. It means knowing that storms will come. But if you do the work, if you commit now, if you rely now, that relationship will go from weak to stronger. The closeness of God will go from something you experience every once in a while to something you experience every single day, every single minute. Yes, even in every single breath. It's possible, but you have to put the work in. And the work looks like surrender. The work looks like obedience. The work looks like saying, Jesus, you are Lord. You don't have to be in storms. There's no storm that God hasn't taken his people through. We don't have to fear the waves. Our God walks on water and tells us we can too. But the thing is, this passage also reminds us that Christ ignored is Christ unknown. We are judged by Jesus, by God, for knowing and not doing. The good you ought to be doing if you know it and not doing it, you will be judged. The love you ought to be giving, if you know it and you're not sharing it, you will be judged. The things that God blessed you with, your skills, your gifts, your abilities, your resources, everything that you are, if you are not giving it for God's glory, you will be judged. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how we're not judged, and that's true, but God will judge. 
the prophets are united on this. The, the, the gospel writers are united on this. Jesus' word is united on this. What we read is what we sell. What we've been given is accepted to bear fruit. What God calls us is to obedience and surrender. That's true discipleship. Because we are judged in the law, in the prophets, in the gospels, in the New Testament for knowing what we ought to be doing and not doing it. The things that happen to the gospel that Jesus says, I am the authority, not the law. So it's not scripture that judges us. It's not the church or our neighbor's judgment that we should fear. It's Jesus' judgment. Are we reaping what God has sown? Are we bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Are we looking like Jesus or in the words of Jesus himself, like our Father in that home? It's what we should be focused because Christ ignored and Christ alone and Christ alone puts us at mercy of the storm. I don't want any of us to be at mercy of the storm because that's how drowning happens. That's how boats get broken. That's how hearts get broken. But I'm telling you, my sisters and brothers, if you don't want to be at mercy of the storm, you ought to trust the rock, the solid rock, the firm foundation, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ Himself. If we don't want to be at mercy of the storm, we ought to be facing our trust in God, our full reliance on God, our surrender to God every single day. We ought to be building this relationship with God, making it stronger now, so that when the storm comes, we might be able to walk on water if that's necessary. But sometimes you can't walk on water, you just hold on. And that's okay too if you're holding on to not the boat, but to Jesus Himself. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means surrender. And one of the things I love about the Benjamin Church is not just, you know, our believers' baptism. I think we're right on that. It's not just our peace position, because I think Jesus actually didn't mean us to kill each other. Vile thought I know. It's to me, like, Jesus, when he said, love your enemies, he didn't say, God, God, it's just vile, I know. Just bear with me, accept yourself, right? I believe in the preschool of all believers, but the, the idea that we as a community, we live together as a community, we serve God as a community, we work together, not just about me, not just about us. I love that. One of the things I love about this Anabaptist denomination, these president type people, is that we always saw following Jesus as literally a surrender. How we follow Jesus, the test of piety, right? That's the old word that we use, piety. Most of like, I don't know that is, but I like piety, right? That's not what they're talking about. Promise you, that's not what they're talking about. It took me like a whole year to figure that part out, too. So if you're thinking piety, I forgive you, too. It's fine. We were there, right? I was just like, I didn't even find it took piety when I around this church. I don't know, right? But the idea of fully following Jesus, our family has said for two, three hundred years that it's about obedience. And I pray for all of us. And we think about what it means for Christ to be our firm foundation. It's not just something we know. It's not just something we experience. It's not just about what Jesus did. It's not just about what the church did. It's not just about what the Spirit did. It's not just about what the Father did. It's about what we've done. And what we're asked to do, my sisters and brothers, is to obey. Amen? I can invite our pastor hand on the worship team. They're going to close singing firm foundation. And as we sing this song, we need to be reminded that, that there's a firm foundation 
that we can have is by putting our full trust and reliance on God. That the way we do that is to fully surrender. So, so if you want, you can stand and enjoy the thing with us. If God needs to do a little bit of work, I mean, you can sit right there and God, let, let God do that work on you, right? We start off saying, take a minute and say, God, I thank you for being my foundation. If there's something that's keeping you from relying on God now, take the time to do that. And if you need prayer or you want prayer for you or for anyone else that you know and love and, and anything that's responsive to the things come up, we'd love to pray for you. But as we sing this song, may it become our prayer. As it becomes our prayer, may it become our life. Sisters and brothers, may we be faithful to God. May we surrender. May we obey. May we be disciples God has called us to be. Let's stand to
$1,000,000 to build an impossible dream in the desert. But sometimes it's like that. I laughed about how we, we would rather, you know, be all the radio things that our government can give us and not give us, or, or the parents of this world can bless us with, than the police trust God. And as we got internal, I started thinking about this life of self that's been told about how, what does it mean to live for myself? What does it mean to actually pledge myself to Jesus? What does it mean to live in a way that every day is a surrender, every day is a gift, not just to God, but to my world of me? What does that look like? And so as we leave, as we, we, we kind of wrap up this sermon on the playing section of Luke, that we be reminded that, that Christ is indeed our firm foundation, but we must keep Him the firm foundation. That Christ is indeed a rock, but He has to be a rock every single day. He is my prayer for all of us, that the Spirit may find us, that the Father may hold us, and that we may always seek to find Jesus. And that Father and God, we thank you so much. And in Jesus, we have the cornerstone, the foundation, the author and perfecter, author and finisher of our faith. It is the, through Jesus that we even have a pathway to you. It is Jesus and in the life that he lived and the death that he died and, and you raised him from the dead that makes it possible that we can say, in Christ all darkness is defeated. In Christ all sin is removed as far as the east from the west. In Christ we've been redeemed. Teach us surrender. Teach us obedience. But all of us, have been called by you to help us to not just call you out, but to listen to your call. Help us to not just know about you, but to actually know you. Help us to not just be grateful that we made that decision to follow you, but help us to make that decision to follow you every single day. Christ, you are a firm foundation, the solid rock on which we all stand. We thank you that in you, we don't have to fear the storms. In you, we don't have to fear the wind. In you, we don't have to fear anything. But teach us to end that. Spirit, help us to obey. Lord, make us your disciples. In holy and precious things. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.